This is a bit of a different one for me to discuss, so while I just spent most of the city rumination gushing and the asylum one, let's actually discuss this one. I, I'll go ahead and give you the, the quick sentence summary right up front, as is my want. I, it's better than I was expecting and worse than I was hoping. I do, I, I do like the DLCs. At least the DLCs are actually legit, legitimately good and have a lot of actual fun to them and better design and tighter and more variety and less padding and less filler and more interesting. And almost all of my favorite story beats, almost all of them, came from the DLC stuff. So definite credit there. I know I hate to lump that all into one thing, but it's a definite difference compared to what happened back in City. That being stated, there was one DLC that didn't really work for me. That would, of course, be Harley's, which was just okay. But even that one still had more attention and care to it than most of the base game. The combat? Well, let's come back to that. Let's talk about the overworld design. The I've talked before, many times, about how if you're going to do an open world game, you have two very important things you have to do with it. There's other things that matter, like making it visually interesting to go through so you have something pretty to look at, and making sure that there's a degree of flow to the level of actions and how you place things. But the two really big important things, in my opinion, are A, you have to make getting from point A to point B enjoyable. If you don't, all you've done is created a commute. And B, you have to have a good density of activities to do. Now, this game manages A quite well. Just getting from point A to point B is actually quite fun. The no really super mega launch cannon of both the Batmobile and the, the like when you, when you do the, the grapple thing, I forget what it was called, but it's like and then you just go lunging into the sky. And the fact that they've changed the flight uh, mechanics slightly, so you can literally just fly infinitely. It's pure flight. It's, it's a Super Mario World, right? You do the cape thing, like, that is exactly what you do in this game. And once you get a rhythm for it, and you just use the zip line to give yourself speed every now and again, you can literally fly anywhere, and it's actually fun. I'm with it. There are some issues with context-sensitive inputs. That's across the whole game, not just the open-world aspect. But I do feel the density of the open-world was a little bit lacking. While there's plenty of stuff to do, not as much of it is very interesting. And that leads me to my first major problem with the game. It's a little too Ubisoft. Now, coming from someone who actually does enjoy Ubisoft games, you know, the Ubisoft formula, even I will admit that that's, the Ubisoft formula only works when you put very careful and special care and craft into making it work. Some of the side stuff was fun, but most of it was not. The overwhelming majority of it was not. Instead, it felt like going down a checklist in order to accomplish things. You hit the checkpoint, you fight a group of guys, or you go track a dude in the weapons van, and then, you, okay, you just wait for a minute. It's really easy. And then you go to the place, and you do, like, one or two predator sections, and then you're done. <sighs> you know, and it, it's just every single one of them has to be repeated at least three times before you can actually finish it. Like, the man-bat thing, you have to go hunt him down, and there's the nine fire... No, there was, like, 15 firefighters, and all of them... It, there's just... There's lots of it, but it's actually too much... I want you to remember that for later, because that's going to be a recurring element. I do have to say, though, as strange as this may sound, some of the Riddler challenges were actually fun for me. Not the racing things, although those, those were okay. But some of the Riddler stuff, especially the actual puzzles which were in the, uh, not the warehouse, the orphanage, those were fun and legitimately enjoyable, and I actually kind of had fun going through them. So, hey, sweet, actual Riddler puzzles. 
uh, very Zelda style, if I was to clarify it on something. But then you have just the the rote everything else, and it's just I don't know. It it kind of got to the point where I actively wanted to stop doing the content. That's a good time to talk about another positive, which I mentioned earlier, the combat. Now, I'm going to say something a little bit controversial here. I think this is the best the combat has been in the series. Do note I haven't played Origins. But of the trilogy, I think this one has the tightest combat. If I'm, if I'm going to do this visually here, I would say this is Asylum, and then there was this big jump up in quality for City, and then a smaller but still increase in quality for, or, uh, for Night. There's a few little things they do which really polish the quality of it. The fact that you can pick up a weapon and that just basically grants you immunity to certain types of, of enemies for like three or four hits, but there is a trade-off to that because it does make it so that you have to you pick it up and there's the slowness to it and also it changes how your attack pattern works. Um, the increased variety of enemies, the fact that the enemies are much smarter in how they deal with you and combo you much more. Like, you're getting attacked from every side much more on this one. There's also uh, the fact that you have the environmental stuff, which you can use against the enemies, and the team knockdowns, which are awesome, by the way. And the fact that periodically you can switch over to play as someone else. Although, the gameplay style doesn't vary up enough too much that I'm really into it, except for when you're playing as Nightwing, which is just freaking amazing, but let's not get into that. Um, there's also, uh, I don't know, there's, there's little, little tiny details that they did in order to polish that combat just, just a little bit more. It is the tightest, in my opinion, it's ever been, and I had tons of fun with it. Now, that's important because it's one of the only things I never actually got bored with throughout the course of the game. <laughs> um, so... We all know the meme, right? Tank Man! You know, this, this is the game where we play as a tank, right? Now, I've heard that. I, everyone's heard that if they have if they know anything about this game at all. It's one of the first things I found out about this game. And so I was like, okay, fine. And I started playing the game. I was like, I don't see what all everyone's all about. The tanks are fine. They're, the tank controls are fine, and it's fun to knock out the drones. and it's It's cool. I'm with it. Okay. Okay, I'm having another mandatory tank section. Okay. I'm having another mandatory... Okay. Wow, now I have to defend the entire GCPD. Wow, that's that's funny. It's This is taking a while. Oh, the boss fights in the tank. Because there's no actual boss fights in this game. I mean, there's the Riddler boss fight, the King boss fight, and the uh, Croc boss fight. But all of those are actually kind of the same fight. And that's it. There's no boss fights here. I think that is something very much to this game's detriment. No, the boss fights are in the frickin' tank. Credit where credit is due, the tank fight against the giant drill bit was actually pretty cool, and I did enjoy that, so I'll give them credit there. But my point is, this is one of the most clear-cut examples of Dragon Age 2 Syndrome I have ever seen. Now it is, you know, I did, to, to explain that for those of you not aware of the term, uh, Dragon Age 2 Syndrome is specifically where something in gameplay is fun, but then you have to do it over and over and over and over and over and over, and it stops being fun. Now, this is related to the game being too long problem. But remember, it's not actually about the length of the game, as I've said many times, and we'll continue to hammer this point in. It's about the density of the game and how the game handles its length. This is, to go back to what I mentioned earlier, a game that I feel is way too long. This was a four-day game to push through, which is a little over twice as long as the previous two games, or longer than both previous games combined, in terms of overall playtime. 
Now, that length doesn't, isn't the problem. It's what they use it with. This is why I led with that side quest thing. Because while there are a few side quests that are fun, and most of the main quests are legit, most, there's just so much of, okay, now go do this, and then go do this, and go do these exact same things. And virtually every tank fight is exactly the same. And it just drags on you after a while until it gets to the point where you're just not having fun anymore. So I get it, guys. The tank things were fun, but shallow. And something that's shallow is only fun for so long. It's um, also a problem because they shove the tank stuff into your face constantly. Remember I mentioned the Riddler stuff earlier? Yeah, some of the Riddler tank puzzles were not as much fun as some of the puzzles you do in, in the Orphanage, for example. Now, this is all just my opinion, but... God, I, I've, I've heard several people theorize, and I don't know that much behind the scenes on this one, that maybe what actually happened is they had to go bigger and stronger, and, you know, they had to go more, and so they just they came up with this tank thing, and they just went all in on the tank. And it was just kind of, oh, my God. Which is very important, because I think that sort of dragging it out too long thing helps perfectly encapsulate why the main twist of the game doesn't work for me. Spoilers, of course, as always. This is a rumination. There are spoilers here. That's how that works. If you want non-spoilers, you can go to the website, go to the review page, and there's a thing there, and you can click the spoilers tag to reveal spo all the bullet points, but there's just a non-spoiler review there, which this is not. Now, what this is, is... <gasps> It was Jason Todd, because of course it freaking was. It was so obvious. Anybody who watched the stream can vouch for this. I literally guessed that it was Todd the first scene I saw him in. It was just like, okay, well that's Todd. And then every other scene kept emphasizing it. And then many, many other times, it kept re-emphasizing how big of a mystery it was. Who could this mystery man be? Who could it possibly be? Even in the highlight reel, which should be going live sometime, actually probably before this video, so hopefully you've seen that already, one of the clips, by coincidence, included one of the random conversations, of which there are many, of saying, hey, guess what? There was an, yeah, who do we know? How could it be? I haven't been able to figure out the mystery of the Arkham Knight's identity. Now, why am I bringing this up with regards to the padding thing in the Dragon Age 2 Syndrome? Because it's not the length of the mystery, or how long you stretched it out that matters. It's how you use it. And all they did was hammer that point in over and over and over. Who could it be? Who could it be? Who could it be? Who could it be? Oh, it's Todd. The extremely obvious answer. I've been told that in interviews before the game came out, they also basically lied. That is to say, they deceived without telling a, a, a lie. That it's a totally new character. The Arkham Knight's a totally new character. Sure he is, guys. There's also the fact that his story arc just stops. Like, you, you stop him, and then he's mentioned once, and then he gets his DLC, and that's it. Like, that's, that's it. That's all he gets. <laughs> the game does not use its story length properly at all, and there are several very long sections of padding and nonsense, and something that I've heard uh, writing uh, teachers, you know, people who are far better about writing than I am, talk about. It's called on-the-nose storytelling, which is when it's someone saying something really obvious or really overt that doesn't really need to be said, and that happened a lot. In fact, that contributed to the padding of the game, which is why I'm saying this in relation to the DA2 syndrome problem. Because many times someone will just say the bloody obvious. Alfred will say it, or Barbara will say it, or Bats will say it. And there's no need for that dialogue to even exist. Because they're reiterating things we already know, or they're saying things that are very obvious to pick up on. 
And this just dragged the game on and on. And it doesn't help that there's another interesting problem here. Now, I say problem. This is... I mean, this is a game that has Penguin as a cameo and Two-Face as a cameo and Riddler. Uh, well, Riddler actually gets a huge amount of screen time. I'd say he probably has the third most dialogue in the entire game. Which is interesting when you think about it, but moving on. Um, you know, most of the characters are just kind of there. We had the brief thing with Croc. Ah, poor Croc, all the crap he was going through. You know, little stuff like that. I did like a lot where they went with Freeze. Or that is to say, the Freeze couple. I, no, no, no joke. That was actually legitimately heartwarming, legitimately touching. Got a story positive by itself. It was an awesome scene. But no, this is a story about the Arkham Knight, right? Well, no, it isn't, because there's not really any story there. He shows up, and he tries to kill Batman several times, and then fails, and he just kylings his way through. <sighs> he really does. There are several times where we just absolutely curb-stomp him in gameplay. Multiple times. And each time, he's just like, no, I'm fine. And he almost always just wrecks us in cutscenes, except when he needs not to for some reason. There's a lot of inconsistent writing with that, too, and frankly, the dialogue also suffered throughout the game, if I'm just being completely blunt. But he's, he's not the narrative focus, despite being the name of the game. I mean, I, you could argue that we're talking about Batman, and that was indeed my original impression to begin with. But no. No, he's not the narrative focus, despite how much screen time he gets. Well, then it's got to be Scarecrow, right? Scarecrow's the big villain? No. Again, the Scarecrow is the final boss, although you, it, it's actually possible to have plenty of other bosses after him, but let's not get into that. But even Scarecrow's story is not about Scarecrow. Fear, 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 fear. Fear, fear? Fear, 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 fear. No offense to the actor, but he, he, there's nothing to him. He's completely one-note, one-dimensional. And all he and I know you could say that about a lot of Batman villains because they've got their gimmick right, and they always got to focus on their gimmick. But the problem is, they don't do anything with Scarecrow. He it's implied thanks to the voice tapes and whatnot and and the background story, but it's not even in the main plot that his gathering together of the other uh, supervillains and pooling their money and making this army happen somehow in nine months and all of this stuff happening is something that he did. But all of that isn't really about Scarecrow. All he's trying to do is break the bat in the stupidest way possible. In a way that, frankly, is because plot. Uh, to describe that in brief, oftentimes a writer finds themselves in a story at point A. Now, for whatever reason, they need to be over here at point B. Now, a good writer, or even, or even an excellent writer, will come up with a man f phenomenal path from point A to point B. Some writers will just say, oh, well, be, and that's because plot. Why do we get to point B? Well, because the plot needs to be at point B. There's no logic there. There's no reason. There's no sense. There's no in-character purpose. There's no thematic purpose. There's nothing that elevates the tension. There's nothing that reveals. There's nothing that changes. All it is is we need to be here because the plot, now we're there. And that was a significant problem with this game as well. But I'm getting a little bit off topic. I'm talking about Scarecrow. He shows up periodically to chat, but he doesn't really even show up in the narrative until the end. Now, they did something similar with Hugo Strange, but the difference is Hugo Strange was brilliantly characterized, especially in his interactions with the other villains, and how he would comment on events as they were unfolding. Scarecrow, by contrast, just wants people to be afraid and also might have a revenge thing against us. And so he keeps dragging things out until he can reveal us to the world and blah, blah, blah. 
No. Why is Scarecrow in this game? Because the fear toxin brings out Joker. Why is Scarecrow able to figure out who Bruce is? Because Joker is no longer preventing anyone from doing that. Why is Scarecrow able to unite the group in order to make sure that all of them work together? Because the Joker is no longer acting as a balancing agent to the other supervillains. This is Joker's story. Now, that irritates me a bit, especially given how much effort they spend, especially in the early game, to try and build up the Scarecrow to be this big, awesome, terrifying villain, and they fail miserably. But Joker... <laughs> Joker is... Well, there's, there's something to talk about there, isn't there? And we finally reached the bulk of my rumination. Although, I don't know time-wise. This might only take like a minute or two. But everything I have to say about this game really is in this section. Because, see, is it Joker? We'll just start with the question. Who do you think it is? Who do you think is the one talking to us throughout the course of the game? Now, there are three broad possibilities I thought of. Possibility number one. It is literally the Joker. His spirit or soul or whatever you'd like to call that. That's basically hopped into us as a result of whatever because of the super virus, which, let's be honest, is basically a super virus, or because of the fear toxin, or some kind of combination or mutation. Now you're probably thinking, well, that's nonsense and insanity. Yes, this is DC. Even in the Arkhamverse, and especially in this game, there is just straight-up magic at several points. I mean, just look at how the Titan formula worked. You remember that? You know, it's Joker's spine popping out of his back. It went just in, back in just fine. They already have science in this game. So the idea that this is literally the Joker in, in the actual sense of the word is not something that I consider out of bounds. There's not a lot of evidence that's really concrete in favor of any of these, in my opinion, by the way. You could say, well, he knows about the stuff with Jason Todd. Well, not necessarily, because he doesn't actually reveal that until we find out that Todd's alive, and bats could just, you know, presume that based on that. So that doesn't really mean anything. Option number two. This is some kind of uh, cloning, a fork, a mental fork kind of a situation, where what we're having here is a pattern of the Joker's mind, which has gotten into us thanks to the super virus. This is actually as silly as the first option, in my opinion, because it once again relies on science to say that this super Joker blood thing just infects you with a pattern of his mindset. Sure. We do see this in the fake Jokers. Hen uh, let's see, it was Henry Bell, King, and Charisma. I wrote those down, by the way, because while that section was a little bit padding-y, especially in terms of gameplay, and frankly, I think the inclusion of them into the story was a, was a mistake, nevertheless, I do kind of like what they did with it. It might have worked better back in City, to be completely blunt, because what we have is the four aspects of the Joker's personality, each one dominant in one of them, whereas all of them are dominant inside of Bats, which also lends credit to the soul, yeah, spirit, I don't know, whatever you want to call it theory. But either way, we have uh, Bell, which is the fixation, the obsession, the monomania. This, I need this. This is what really, I, I guess I could actually grip something. Uh, here, I've got my bin of carrots. This is what really matters. Don't you understand? Nothing else really is relevant here other than these carrots and the fact that I am going to eat them. And I'm dripping some water over me. <laughs> Wow, how did I manage that? Good lord, did I actually crack this thing? No, I didn't. Oh, I see what was happening. Okay, we're cool. Don't you understand? These are mine. And they're going to keep being mine. Well, would you like some broccoli? Why would I eat broccoli? 
Why would I ever have any other kind of food other than this one? This is the only type of food I really want to eat, and therefore this is the food I'm going to eat. I don't understand why this is so hard to understand. Which leads us to king. King's the easiest to understand. Violence. Or psychopathic or psychotic nature. Whatever you want to call it. He just wants to hurt people. He just wants to lash out and cause pain and to enjoy it, to have that thrill of causing violence upon others. You know what that's like. You play video games, right? The difference, of course, is you wouldn't do that to a real-life person, whereas the Joker enjoys doing that to real-life people. In fact, Joker probably wouldn't even enjoy doing it to a video game, because it doesn't matter there. Not much to say there. Of course, that leads to charisma, which is also one of the best <clears throat> bosses in the game. Charisma is the showmanship. You have to, if you're going to do it, why not do it with style? We need to make sure that we've got the spotlight on us, and we need to give that spotlight a reason to stay there. We need to make sure that everyone sees just how wonderful and different and unique we really are. Which leads me, of course, to Henry, which is another simple one, but an easy one to understand as well. He's the intellect. As I said in my asylum rumination a few years ago, and as I said just if, like last week in the city rumination, Joker, is, is, this Joker, the Arkham Joker, is in my opinion not actually insane. He's completely in control. He knows what he's doing. He just does what he does because it amuses him, or because he's got his own particular goals in mind. He knows what he's doing. Unlike Scarecrow, who has no idea how dangerous it would be to break the bat, Joker knows exactly how dangerous that is. He just wants to do it anyway. It's because it'd be funny. <laughs> that's, that's hysterical. I broke the Batman. Oh, he's ripping me to shreds. <laughs> yeah, Joker walks in knowing. Right? <laughs> uh, actually, a lot of jo uh, Batman's rogues gallery want to break him, and in my opinion, do not understand what that would mean for them. The man who laughs is not something they really want. Which brings me to my next point. Uh, Henry is the intellect the the planning, the ability to, to think forward, forwardly and actually map out how they're going to do what, when, where, and why. Which, of course, leaves Bats as all of the above. He's just got the Joker in his head. Or does he? This is the third possibility, and my personal favorite of the three possibilities. There's no Joker at all. This game, the Arkhamverse in particular, has shown many times that mental illness can manifest more or less literally in a way that arguably doesn't happen in real life, although, of course, that's debatable because we know so little about mental illnesses, so let's just move on from this point. But it is pretty literal and, in some cases, tangible when it comes to the Arkhamverse. We've got some... Uh, well, I don't, want to, I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm not going to say anything. We've got some stuff going on, right? The idea that this Joker is just part of Bruce's own mind appeals to me. Because I've said for years that Batman's insane and crazy. And that he's got that, that that what he does in order to deal with that, how he copes, aside from the whole dressing up as a bat thing, that that's really secondary. That's that's just kind of ancillary to the overall thing. No, what he really does is he has discipline. There's a very precise, honed patterned way that he thinks, and through sheer willpower and through sheer patterning of how he constructs his brain and compartmentalizes his brain, he just stays on top of it. 
This is, of course, in my opinion, one of the biggest reasons why the bat never kills. Because, not because it's wrong or anything like that, but because there is that very strong, very tangible fear that if he ever crossed that line, he might not cross back. Because he is a very violent, crazy, possibly insane person. Sense bank? Now, I imagine several of you are just over there nodding right now, because, I mean, nothing I'm saying is really new. But... I'm saying all this to establish why I think the Joker is just that. The fear toxin and the, the virus may have something to do with manifesting it, but I would actually disagree in both cases. Because if you pay attention, Bats kind of gets worse throughout the trilogy here. Not in terms of, like, quality or whatever. I mean, like, he gets more violent, he gets more psychopathic. He loses himself more and more. The discipline isn't working anymore. He's being pushed past the point of tolerance, and... He's losing that fight with himself. This is the second reason why I like the idea that it's just an aspect of his own psyche. Because it means the main character and main villain of this game are the same person. Because Joker is the main villain of this game, I'm sorry. He has the most screen time by far of anyone other than Batman himself, and the most dialogue by far more than anyone other than Batman himself. He might actually have more dialogue than, than Kevin Conroy did, I'm not 100% on that, but he has a lot of dialogue, because he's there constantly. And he is the final boss. Even though it's just a victory lap and not actually an encounter, because hell no, we, we couldn't figure out a way to get a tank inside of Bruce's head. I'm shove that thing. <clears throat> This is this leads me very closely to the third reason why I like this idea the most. Because what we're seeing now, it adds some characterization to the Joker in the game. Because it's not Joker. It's what Bats always saw Joker as. It's his understanding, his perspective on Joker. Now, Bats knows Joker better than anyone. So, it's a very accurate portrayal. But if you pay attention to how he acts and where he acts, you can kind of feel how the edges are just, just a little bit wrong here and there. And how it doesn't quite line up overall with how it probably actually is, right? Instead, what we see is just that portrayal. It's not hard to understand that. Imagine a character in a, in a work of fiction that you know extremely well, either because you've watched or read or played it many, many times, or maybe you've studied it, or maybe you've written for it, or whatever. You have a mental pattern, an image of that character in your head. And you could probably plop them down in just about whatever, and they would re and you could like write or guide or imagine how they would react to different stimuli because you know the character. You that this is this is writing 106 or so, right? You've designed the character first, then you put them in the circumstance, because once you know the character, you know how they'll react. And then you can write from there, right? And that's kind of what, in my opinion, Bruce is doing here. He is writing the Joker in his psyche as his psyche is breaking down. This, of course, also lends me to the fourth reason I like this idea. The fact that this is the Joker... Well, that it's not the Joker, actually. But more like this... It adds more weight to the idea of how bad this would be if that side of Bruce took over. If the man who laughs, or the bat who laughs, or whatever it's called, actually came into the fore. And we see just a little bit of a window of that during the final boss, too, if you're paying attention. The bit where he goes in and just absolutely wrecks the GCPD with his giant tank, which is no longer shooting non-lethal rounds. By the way, just I have to comment on this. The non-lethal thing has always been silly in the Arkham series. It's pushed to the point of absolute ludicrousness in night. I, hang on, let me run over people going 70 miles an hour. It's okay, non-lethal. Sure. Anyways. 
we see him non-lethal rounds gunning down tons of people, butchering people with the, the, the machine gun, and a Gotham on fire. I've mentioned this before, and I don't remember if I mentioned this in the ruminations, because I, you know, I, I talk on the stream and I don't remember what I say and where. I've always liked the idea that there's two Batman, uh, two settings, to be more clear. Two Batman settings. There's one that exists with the rest of DC. Now, I do like that, because I do think Batman forms a nice puzzle piece of the overall picture of the Justice League and the stuff with Darkseid. And just, it, he fits very well with a lot of that, right? He's actually one of my favorite Justice League members, right? You know, sense make. The thing is, though, the moment you do that, most of the stuff happening in Gotham doesn't make sense. And you'll notice that despite the fact that Gotham is apparently constantly being hit, he has plenty of time to do Justice League stuff and other stuff. So, essentially, the way I tend to mentally divide it is there's the greater DC stuff, which Batman is a part of, where he's basically already fixed Gotham to, to relativity. Then there's the stuff where Batman is it. There's no Superman. There's no Jeff Johns. There's no... Um, lanterns of any kind, there's no Diana, right? All of that's gone. Instead, the, the most powerful individual meta within the setting is Clayface, right? Or, or Solomon Grundy, born on a Monday. Sorry, sorry. And that's as, as high-powered as it gets. And if you do that and shove the rest of DC out and just look at this, all of a sudden things make a lot more sense and come more into focus, in my opinion. Because... The, it, it adds, uh, it brings everything a little bit more down to level. It makes it more believable when one of the supervillains of Gotham is able to actually do things on a large scale. It helps to explain why there's no one else to help deal with it. Because there's literally no one else to help deal with it. But there's another reason I like that, too. It makes Batman even more terrifying. Because the man who laughs is someone who, someone like the Flash or Superman should be able to bring down in literally seconds. But imagine there is no the rest of DC. Imagine a world in which the highest-powered individual is either a wealthy person who could be killed with a gun or Clayface, right? Now imagine the broken, deranged Joker, quote-unquote, psyche of Bruce Wayne. All that insanity, all that craziness, fully bu bubbling up into the surface. And now that's the guy in charge with all of the resources and all of the skill and all of the, the strength and the tech and the gadgets and the money. And that's terrifying. And I really like that idea. And, of course, that adds to why um, I like that. I guess that's reason number four or five. I forget what we're up to at this point, to be completely honest with you. But it makes that threat all the more real. I know, I know. They mention other superheroes. I mean, we know at least Bloodhaven's there and Nightwing. Although that, that could be part of it. You know, that could be part of the Badverse. But if you eject the rest of DC, it makes the scale and threat so much more terrifying. Because Joker taking over Bruce is all of a sudden a game-changer, right? Whether it's his actual spirit and essence, some kind of duplicated pattern, or just Bruce's own broken psyche. The Bat... Losing it is game. As opposed to just, now we lost Bruce and that sucks, but, I mean, the world's going to be fine otherwise, right? What do you think? I'm actually really, really curious of your guys' thoughts on this. You, I have one last thing to share. Um, this is the great curse of Batman. And I mean this with total sincerity. Not in-universe. Here, in real life. Here we have the problem of the Joker. 
during the stream, uh, someone asked me who my favorite DC villain was. I answered Luther, by the way. I'll go and answer that. Although only certain versions of Luther, I'll admit it. Young Justice, DCAU, excuse me. And several of the comics as well. But a lo I asked the question back of the stream. What's your favorite DC villain? I'll ask you right now, those of you watching in comments. What's your favorite DC villain? You already see where this is going, don't you? A fairly large number. I'll assume you paused to answer that in the comments. I'll give you a second here. I'll give you a second to pause. Okay. A large amount of people answered the Joker. And that's the curse of Batman. Because Batman can't seem to get away from the Joker. Oh, sure, there's stories that don't have to do with him, and there's things that get away, but every single Arkham game has been in about the Joker. Even the one... Like, the first one makes sense. That was the Joker story. The second one was supposed to be Strange and Raish, but no, it was Joker story. And this one's supposed to be Arkham Knight and Scarecrow, but no, it's Joker story. We can't get away from the Joker. I mean, Suicide Squad, the movie, anybody? Just had to shove the Joker in, in what is effectively a cameo, because we just couldn't do a Batman thing without the Joker. Now, don't mistake me. The Joker's great, especially when he's played by Mark Hamill, who is amazing as he always is. But I do think that this is that great curse, because not just because of the fact that, you know, the popularity problem, but from a creation perspective, you go into a room and you try to pitch a game or a book or a story or whatever to the people in charge and say, hey, and they're like, well, where's the Joker? And it's like, oh, um, I wasn't going to have the Joker in this story. Uh, well, people might not want to see that if it doesn't have the Joker. Right? I mean, why would you want to play a game set in the Metroid universe that doesn't star Samus? T-Name, another example of that problem. I should name that problem at some point. It's it's the branding problem, right? You're, you're, you're chained to the brand at a certain point because people just aren't as interested. I've seen this from many, many people. No judgment, although I don't agree or even understand it. Um, but I've seen a lot of people are like, why would I want to in get invested into a work of X fiction that do does not include the main brand of the fiction. Why would you ever have a Batman story that does not involve Bats and the Joker? Either way, these have been my thoughts. I'm looking forward to yours. Hope to see you next time, guys.